I was like, did you hear? And I was like, like what? I told one person and other people started piping up. Did you hear? People going by on scooters. Did you hear? Buck was like <laughs> the town crier. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> I'm Caroline. I'm Christina. And this is Gravel Trap F1. The F1 grid was racing over a mile high this weekend. They were in Denver? Nope. Mexico City. Right. So in the formation lap, we discuss how high altitude affects Formula One cars. In the Grand Prix segment, we look at the politically charged history of the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez. And at the checkered flag, we'll turn back time and give you our thoughts on the USGP in Austin. Let's get into it. Formula One was in Mexico, which means we were up, 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 close to the heavens. Or more specifically, about 2.2 kilometers above sea level. That's pretty high. One of the uh, ramifications of being that high up when you're on a track, not even just on a track, just in general, is that the air is rarefied which is a fancy word to mean less dense. And I've seen estimates going from it being like 20% less dense to 25%. But for the case of this discussion, where we will talk about air density in this formation lap, but then also just its implications. So for the sake of this conversation, we're going to say that the air density is 25% less. And in the crudest mm. math terms, which is what we're going to use for this entire discussion, we're going to say that at sea level, there are four units of air that are present very vague very broad overarching but four units of air but then when we're up in mexico city we're gonna say that that's three units of air so 25 percent less because that is easier math to keep track of and compare than if you do 20 percent choices were made <laughs> oh but probably the biggest thing is that it affects the big two of a car, a race car that uses aerodynamics in order to increase its performance. So when you have a lower air density around you, you're also having less air resistance. There are less particles that the car has to like push past in order to go forward. So that means you're going to be having less drag, which yes, is fantastic. It means that the cars can in theory go faster, which is why, especially with this long straight in Mexico, we see the cars reaching some of the top speeds, if not the top speed of the season. But one of the downsides of that is that DRS is less effective because when you already have such low drag, it is difficult to go any lower. Imagine that. Which is great for their floors after what happened <laughs> last week. Oh, definitely. Which does Yikes. bring us to the other one of the big two, which is downforce. Because again, these cars use ground effects. So the amount of air that goes between the bottom of the car and the track matters in a massive, massive way. And when you have less air going underneath the car, you're generating less downforce. Less downforce means less grip, means the cars are going to be doing a bit more slip and slide, which just means less control. It's, yeah, which does, which we saw. We saw, we saw, we saw so many drivers <laughs> just like bumping into each other, which does seem to be pretty trademark for the Mexican GP. I can't recall a race we were here where, there wasn't something that happened, you know? 
someone. There was always something. And I do feel like last year, the big something was that Ferrari just came with the complete wrong package. And, and you really saw the pain points from that. So shout out to all the teams for bringing the best package for Mexico City to Mexico City this year. 10 out of 10. Question. Because the goal for the would be to get more air under the car, did any of the teams or could any of the teams come with modified floors that kind of scoop up more in the front and try and grab more air and direct it under? Probably. Like, I, I would need to look at the tech regulations of what they're allowed to, like, because they can bring floors. I just don't know how much it would be worth it for a single race. Because again, this is such an outlier of how high of an altitude we have. Mm. The other two races that have quite high altitude, which we're actually going to being Vegas and Brazil, those ones are still at about half the altitude that we're seeing in Mexico City. Mexico City is about 2.1. And then Vegas is 610 meters, I want to say. And then Brazil is just a little bit higher than that. So both of them are under a kilometer in elevation. So yes, there are other tracks that are high, but there's no other track where you're going to be experiencing the same thing. So at the end of the day, yes, they could bring a modification, but in the cost-capped era, why would they? It's a lot of time and energy for a single track. Um, I was just thinking like one of those aftermarket scoops (laughs) that they could just bolt on and take off. (laughs) Oh, that would be a choice. That's like duct tape everybody's best friend (laughs) it's true it's very very true duct tape saves everything but one of the other effects that we're going to talk about is cooling because anytime you want heat to dissipate there has to be somewhere for it to go and when you have fewer air particles remember instead of the four units of air that are our sea level we only have three that up, up in mexico city so that means that there's just fewer places for the heat to go, the heat in the power unit, the heat in the turbocharger, the heat being generated by the tires and the car in general. So that's why you are seeing the side pods with so many more cooling movers. And those are like the slits along the side that you'll see kind of looking like um, the opening of a toaster, right? So you're going to have the setups and the specific side pods that are going to have just more breathing room, essentially, to try and get more of that heat to dissipate. That's why so many of the drivers will be told, hey, no, you need to use this lap to cool down. That's why you'll see them leaving the slipstream of another car, because that's hot air that is coming off of it. So you want to, as much as possible, get your car into cool air to help it reach a stable temperature. And surprisingly, we didn't have anybody retire just due to overheating this time, which considering some of the temperatures we were seeing, especially at the start of the race, was quite surprising. Like everybody did a really good job of not having their power unit crap out on them, (coughs) Alpine. So good on them for that. And again, managing the tires because those get hot as well as the brakes. We saw a number of lockups potentially contributed to by the temperature. Lots of fun things there to manage when it comes to lower air density. And kind of the the last big thing, which I find really interesting, is that we don't talk a lot about the turbocharger, but the turbocharger is what actually pulls the air into the power unit in a set amount. And if you have less air, that means the power, the turbocharger has to spin more frequently in order to pull the same amount of air in. So it is working Mm -hmm. harder. At sea level, when you have the four units of air, in order to get 12 units into the power unit, you would need to have that turbocharger spin three times. Whereas up in Mexico City, to get that same amount of air, 12 units, you would need to have it spin four times. 
So it is something that teams have to account for. And it's, it's what makes this race particularly interesting. Yes, on track, it's not as, as dynamic to watch. But if you're listening into their radio messages, if you have something like multi-viewer where you actually get to see the transcript of everything they're discussing, it's a really fascinating race because they have all of these technical things that they have to worry about with the car that they don't throughout the rest of the calendar. It's a very specific challenge that, you know, I don't think the average fan necessarily understands, but the moment you get mm. invested in that slight techie thing, the little bit of like, the moment you understand air density to even the minute amount and see the list, the laundry list of things that it can affect, it becomes a super fascinating weekend. And it goes to show that these incredible engineers, how they got their engineering degrees yeah. and how deserved they are to be in the roles that they are. Because I think for a lot of us, we're like, get in car and go fast and win race. The Ta-da! end. But there's so there is so much more that goes into Formula One there's that I feel like, yeah, it's so easy to criticize the team members and the strategy and whatever. But it's like they have so much they're taking into account that they're getting right every weekend that just goes unnoticed because if you get it right, that just means that everything's operating as it should. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes a good weekend is an unnoticeable one. That's right. I loved my science class. This was such a great first segment science class. I loved it. Uh, excellent. I, I love talking about air yeah. density. It's one of those things that I actually learned a lot about with the geographical science degree that I do have. And it was on yeah. micro scale oh. stuff. So like, it makes sense. Yeah, I do have a question. Yeah. Uh, it's a hypothetical. Let's say it rains at the Mexico Grand Prix. What adjustments would we be seeing that we might that might surprise us? based on the altitude and air density because now you're adding in a a humidity factor Mm. the biggest thing that you'd be seeing is a you're already lowering the grip of the track even further so from Mm -hmm. that aspect controlling the cars the moment you have water on track is going to be exponentially more difficult than if it was a dry track because you do have that Mm -hmm lower um lower grip lower downforce and now you're also making the track slippery even with intermediate or wet tires that's going to be a pain and the other big one is going to be the heat transfer except it would Mm -hmm. make the heat transfer more efficient because water can Mm -hmm. actually retain a whole bunch of heat it has um it needs a lot of heat to go into it in order for it to go from being water to vapor so it has a high specific temperature i think it is I think it's specific temperature. Yeah. Long story short, it would make cooling more efficient. So it would help some aspects of the car and be a detriment to others. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought I had, because I don't know that we've had a rainy Mexico Grand Prix. I don't think we have. Since it came back in 2015, no. but it would be something. Yeah. Well, thanks, Christina. That was a great Formation Lap segment. I hope all of you guys got smarter thanks to Christina's expertise and that you can bring it and share it with all of your friends and family next year when the Mexico Grand Prix comes around, because it makes you sound so smart when you know these (laughs) things that Christina knows. I'm telling you, man. Today for the Grand Prix segment, as we usually do, we're going to be going into some of the history of the Mexico Grand Prix. I briefly mentioned that uh, it came back in 2015. It doesn't have the most extensive of histories, but it's got some fun little tidbits that we'll go into. So 
The track was built in 1959, which I know was not recent. But the father of Mexico's most famous racing brothers, Ricardo and Pedro Rodriguez, their father was an advisor to Mexican President Adolfo Lopez Mateo. So we had motorsport in the president's office. And he had a word in his boss's ear about building a racing circuit in Mexico City's Magdalena, I hope I say this right, Mixuca Sports Park using the existing internal roads. So he had this beautiful idea of using Mexico's existing park and roads to build this beautiful circuit. So El Presidente said, si, I like the idea. And they worked on the track and it was completed in under a year. So the first Grand Prix, it first appeared as a non-championship event in 1962. So it didn't count towards the championship. Um, and it started to be held as a championship event in 1963, the next year, 1963 to 1970, which pause. I actually think this is a great idea. When you introduce a new track, maybe, maybe take a year to figure it out and not have it count towards the championship because Nobody has experience on it, and maybe we don't know what we're doing on it. And then have it count for the championship the next year. Just an idea. Just a thought. I think as we're introducing some new tracks now into the calendar, could be could be interesting. I will say yeah. my favorite thing about the first Qatar race, or Qatar, sorry, uh, was it last year? Or whatever year they went to. 2020. Maybe it was 2020 they went there? 2020. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. My... What I really enjoyed about that was that no one had raced there except for a couple of the younger guys who had done that, like in in support series or uh, like F four or something like that. Uh, yeah, right. They had they had raced the, so that the rookies actually had a leg up on the veterans, and they all had to kind of, you know. But watching the veterans learn a brand new track that was actually kind of exciting for me to to see them kind of suss oh, it all yeah. out for the first time. Yeah. Still, still televise it. Still act like it's a it's a it's a grand prix weekend still it was still called a grand prix but it didn't count towards the championship i think that would add a little interesting twist but okay. it also adds the question of like if they're gonna go and they're gonna spend all the money to be there and it's not even count to the championship then why do they go but also you could throw in another wrench into the works and be like throw in the reserve drivers out there and be like <laughs> See what happens. Okay. But like, then, <laughs> then you get the big issue. You know how people are like, do sprint races count for what? Or what do they count for? Like for swing, yeah. yada, yada. Then you'd also have the chaos of like, does this count for statistics? But yeah. that's not a problem for us. That's somebody else's problems like Sean Kelly's. No, but it's what they did in Mexico, which I thought I thought made sense, especially since this was the era before F1 got really safe and they started really cracking down on safety. So like shout out to them for being like, yeah, let's check first and run a race first, but not have it count towards anything because then maybe people won't push quite as hard and we can actually find the weak spots. So. Anyways, it was then held as, as a championship event in 1963 for seven years until 1970 and then took a break for six years and then came back in 1986 to 1992 and then took another break and then returned in 2015 at the Mexico City Circuit, which is what it was then called. I'll get into that in a minute. But that 1963 race, the first one that counted towards the championship, was won by Jim Clark. And the next few years, uh, they say Mexico's Fiesta vibes meant it became the traditional season ender for Formula One. It used to be the one that was right at the end of the season uh, there from 63 to, to 1970. 
So the circuit was the first international racetrack ever in Mexico. And they liked the idea that Monza had in Italy, how it was built in a park in the center of the major city. So that was what they did. And they were like, let's just put it in Mexico City. And El Presidente said, yes. Or he said, see. The race provided some unique challenges for racing because, as we spoke about earlier, it was, from my my Americans that know things in feet, it was 7,340 feet above sea level. And as well as the long 180-degree lightly banked and fast pair Peraltada corner that finished the lap in addition to being a bumpy racetrack from actually shifting soils beneath the circuit. So the Mexican Grand Prix of this age of the older age in, in the 1960s and 70s was always the season finale held in October, which like you're kind of think, think about that. If like now it was over, the season was over now, that's basically how it was. So then on the 5th of December in 2013, the FIA released an official, the official 2014 Formula One season calendar. Think about that. They were waiting until December to let everybody know what the calendar was for the next year. Like we're so spoiled now. The Mexican Grand Prix, they had been saying for like two or three years that the Mexican Grand Prix was coming back in 2014. It was coming back in 2014. And then boom, they dropped it on December 5th and said, peace out suckas. It is not on the calendar in 2014. Uh, the FIA announced that the Mexican Grand Prix was postponed to 2015 due to the lack of sufficient preparation time to upgrade what was then a somewhat rundown Hermanos Rodriguez circuit to the Formula One working standards because we are now in the age of safety. So in July of 2014, Bernie Ecclestone confirmed that he had signed a five-year deal for the Hermanos Rodriguez track to host the Mexican Grand Prix starting in 2015. And then on December 3rd, 2014, again in December, the FIA published a confirmed calendar for 2015 showing that indeed the Grand Prix of Mexico was happening on November 1st in 2015. And at that race, German Nico Rosberg won in the Mercedes. Yes, at the first uh, Mexican Grand Prix in the 2000s. So on May, let's fast forward a little bit to May 14th, 2019, now four years later, Mexico City Mayor Claudia Sheinbaum, which I don't really feel like that's a super Mexican last name, but maybe I'm wrong, announced that 2019 would be the last year for the Grand Prix of Mexico in 2019 because... The $400 million Mexican dollar, mind you, so that's $20.8 million American dollars, the fee was to be invested instead into the Tren Maya. The Tren Maya is a railway system. I did a little research for you guys because I love you. The Tren Maya is a railway system that was meant, that's meant to span the entire Yucatan Peninsula. They started the construction, so she was like, no more Mexican Grand Prix. We're going to build a railroad. They started construction on it in June 2020, and believe it or not, they, they're still doing it. Like, it's said to be operational by the end of this year, December 31st, 2023. We'll hop on the train choo to Mexico. Choo-choo. So it's estimated that the race itself generated... I don't even know how to say this. I guess that would be like 8 billion, 8.4 billion Mexican dollars to the local economy. So pesos, I believe yeah. they're called. Yes, pesos, if you will. 8.4 billion 
pesos, which is significantly more than the budget was asking for. Like, basically, the Mexico Grand Prix was bringing in more money than it took to put it on. So it was a really good choice economically to keep on. So on the 8th of August, they announced that the Mexican Grand Prix would remain on the calendar until 2022. And it would be... uh, renamed to the Mexico City Grand Prix to emphasize the support from the government of Mexico City after people were a little bit upset because they would rather see race cars go around than a train on a track. Shocking. To each their own. Very Uh, little overtaking in train racing. Yes, but convenient travel. I love the train. The 2020 edition of the Mexico City Grand Prix was scheduled for the November 1st under the name Mexico City Grand Prix, but was canceled on the 24th of July. Can anyone wonder why? COVID. <coughs> yeah. I'm Just starts hacking. <laughs> <laughs> I am the COVID. Because of COVID. So the 2021 event therefore became the first event to take place under the new name Mexico City Grand Prix. On October 28th of 2022, which was last year, it was announced that the Mexico City Grand Prix had signed an extension to stay on the calendar until 2025. Woot, woot. Very exciting things. But here's a fun little fact, fun little tidbit. Only Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton, and Max Verstappen have won the Mexican Grand Prix since its return in 2015. Yep. Which is kind of crazy to think. Yeah. And Max has won most of them. But it's only been the three of them. Wow. I did a little research for you. Oh. Um, Claudia Scheinbaum Pardo was born to a secular Jewish family in Mexico City. Her father's parents immigrated from Lithuania, and her mother's parents immigrated from Bulgaria. Ah, that is cool. So she's not an F1 fan. Hence... (laughs) She said, can the Mexican Grand Prix build a railroad? And you know what? As a mayor, Miss Ma'am, I see the validity in your choice. Not saying that I'm a mayor, but like from a mayor's point of view, I see why she made the decision that she did. From an economist's point of view, I'm like, ooh. The Grand Prix would would pay for the railroad. (laughs) Try to find a way to keep both, and that would be the answer. Yeah. Would be to just give it one more year and let those profits maybe pay for a railroad. But anyways, that concludes this Grand Prix segment. I hope you learned a little bit about Mexico and the Grand Prix, and Mexico. that you can look forward to it being around until 2025. All right. Well, for today's checkered flag, this is the first time we've all been in a virtual room together since we left Austin. And I wanted to give the fans, the listeners, some feedback from you guys about the race in Austin. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. I know, Caroline, you and I had planned on trying to squeeze some time in Monday morning after the race, but that, that fell through. Yes, I was not feeling well. I was still in my Tacoma, if you will. <laughs> Taco coma. <laughs> but yeah, You're I just welcome. wanted to get your guys's. I mean, I already kind of me and Ian went over it last week. Uh, I don't know if you guys listened, but last week Ian filled in and yes, thank you, Ian, you rock star. Yeah. What what were you guys' thoughts about the race? It's a different experience when you're there than it is when you're watching the broadcast for sure. But Christina, you went back and like rewatched it, right? Yeah. We went back to the hotel and we did our classic Sunday 
evening. We've been to enough races, myself and Nicole together, that we actually have a post-race we are live <laughs> routine. <laughs> so I love it. we like got back to the hotel with all of these snacks and all this food. And we just like plonked out on the couch, brain dead, turned the race on and we're like, okay, what actually happened? But yeah, it was... It was a lot to take in. Yeah. I did feel like the on-track speakers were much louder this year than they were last year. I couldn't really hear them super well last year, and I could hear them this year. I felt like my biggest takeaway from the race, and I'm sure we've all talked it to death now by this point, was the post-race tests that were done on the four specific cars. I understand that that resulted in Lewis and Charles's disqualification. I understand not doing all the tests on all of the cars after every race. It would take something crazy up to like two weeks to end up getting through all the testing if they did all the testing to all the cars. And so I understand that the lottery system is kind of what keeps it fair and everybody's scared enough to like, not keep it fair, but everybody's scared enough of getting caught in the lottery system to, that, it, that it keeps people law abiding, if you will. That people, I don't think that Lewis or Charles were intentionally trying to tear up the bottom of their cars. However, I do think that when you've done those tests that resulted in half of your sample size being disqualified, I feel like at that point, maybe you should take a couple of extra minutes to look at everybody else's. In the name of fairness. So, you know, I can actually add some clarity to this and that their sampling isn't actually random. It's pseudo random. So it's random in the sense that the teams don't know who's going to be tested. But with the planks, they chose who was being tested based on data they had, like telemetry essentially collected from the cars that would have shown how much porpoising essentially or up and down motion that there was so they had a general idea of which cars were leaning towards like probably hitting the track but then they can also do a visual check of how worn down the planks were so it was a conscious decision of which cars they should probably check of the planks in this case like it's it's in no way actually fully random they don't pull names out of a hat for some of these tests to try and figure out who they're doing with what. And before anybody brings up like, oh, well, how ran can it be if like the Mercedes and what other team got tested, like five- Leclerc. No, 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 no. Not the drivers individually, but like throughout the whole season, there were two teams that have had their cars tested five times and then two teams that have had their cars tested none. So yeah. it's important to remember that they do the tests per car, not per team. So if you look at the actual distribution per car- it will be very even. You'll have some cars up at zero and two cars up at three, which when you look at it over like a, a 20 race season is actually a fair even distribution. And it's important to remember that a lot of the times when we're talking about random selection, it resets every single time you're going to do that selection. So it's not, oh, by the time you hit race 20, all 20 of the cars will have been checked once. It's like, no, every single race, there's the equal likelihood that any of the cars, if you're truly doing random testing, that it's every single race, there's the equal likelihood that any of the cars could be selected for the testing. But as already mentioned, it's not actually random selection. It's just unknown selection to the teams. So we we learned a lot about how testing was done, which I think is absolutely fantastic. That's one of the things that I 
I love that these situations bring forward is that you just learn a little bit more about how these different avenues operate in Formula One. But I was actually, we were actually on um, the shuttle when the news broke. And so I don't think a lot of people on my bus were checking because I couldn't feel like the air shift. But I was just kind of sitting there being like, Nicole, wake up from your nap. I got to tell you this thing. Um, And so we were kind of just like sitting there losing our marbles being like, please let us not be on this bus full of fans when this news fully hits everybody. That would have been stressful. I told everybody on my bus. I know. Buck was like, I have an announcement. I was like, did you hear? And I was like, like what? I told one person and other people started piping up and da, 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 da. Yeah. And then on the streets of Austin, after I got off the shuttle and was just walking to like somewhere to get an Uber, actually, I went and got a drink. Anybody I saw in a Mercedes or Ferrari shirt, I was like, did you hear? Did you hear? People going by on scooters. Did you hear? <laughs> Buck was like the town crier. Hear ye, hear ye. Absolutely. Disqualifications after the race. Yeah. <laughs> I loved being there. Like, it was just really fun to be there for it and to see oh. on a sprint weekend, too. And... I got to go with some of my family members that had never been to an F1 race before and didn't really know a bunch about F1. So it was kind of fun to experience it in their eyes as well and to kind of have a rebirth of the love of the sport. And I don't know how exciting it is. And there were a lot of first-time race goers, I felt like, at this year's USGP. I yes. feel like I've met a lot of people that were like, it was my first one. There was a lot was of it, like, yeah. That's great. I think what... Yeah. I do think what happened, and I've heard it from a couple people who didn't end up going, which is, again, one of the unfortunate things. Um, I know a lot of people who didn't return because the cost of tickets was too expensive for them. And so you just had other people now who were buying tickets. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it just, the market shifted slightly this year where... I didn't feel like they were that much more expensive this year than last year. I think it was the big GA. I think GA was the one that got hit the hardest, which would be the most, Hmm. like cost effective one which would affect like kind of the biggest bulk of people um i didn't look at the cost of it last year but i'd I'd be interested to pull it up but that's just like the first hand account that i've heard from a number of people of just like it was too expensive to go i believe that because they were also concentrating on making it a better experience but not increasing their attendance numbers so i do think it had from what i've heard it's had a slight drop Mm -hmm. but like you know, uh, the the natural drop that comes after having the raking, the record-breaking year of, like, last year. Yeah. So yeah. not, like, a downturn, just, like, the natural fluctuation of things. Totally. Um, the content creator, Ash Vandalay, did you see that she yeah. did a little Yes, about, about the numbers rant. and how they're fudged. Yeah. It's like she wasn't talking about a specific... I mean, I think she was referencing NASCAR, but she's seeming to imply that, like, this across motorsport... This is a data set that is often sort of just it's, kind of estimated. It's very like estimated. They never put out daily attendance numbers. It's always for the whole weekend. And so it doesn't count mm. for how many individual fans have been there. So like one person going for a three-day versus somebody, three different people going Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that all of a sudden changes your number drastically. And we know people who went... Friday, Saturday, but didn't go Sunday itself kind of a thing. Right. But yes, numbers across like all attendance. NASCAR is notorious for kind of fudging it and for saying there were way more people there than there actually were. And it's especially noticeable when you have all of these tracking shots going across the track and you're like, I know what that many people looks like. 
and the number you're telling me is not accurate. But good for Coda for having those like money shots up at turn one where it's just absolutely packed and full. Like say what the numbers are what they are or what they say they are. But the pictures like that are really what mm. sells like, no, it was a good weekend. No, it had high attendance. Like, yeah. Speaking of iconic pictures, we'll mm-hmm. be announcing this week our uh, giveaway as part of our partnership with the old art house, where we are Yay! doing a giveaway of his upcoming painting of the Las Vegas race, which hasn't even happened. Woo-hoo! But it will, I've seen early versions of it. And uh, it, it'll have an iconic flair to it that I yeah. think uh, people Tom is like. so talented. He is. I can't wait to see it. I've got a video of him painting it. He sent me a video Ooh, of, of it painting. Ooh, that's so cool. Very cool. And before Amazing. we go, I wanted to give a shout out, shout out to Sophie Pineda. I think I'm saying <gasps> that right. Yeah, Sophie. So, I'm, I think I met her last week. Oh, you did? Because mm-hmm. she is the one who made this. Cute. Yes. Oh, Sophie, I want you to know, Buck... <laughs> It's going to frame this in his house. I know you gave it to me and I was so excited for it, but I, it, it lives on in my heart, but I want you to know it's, it's in, it's in good hands. Yes. I, I did convince her to give it to me because we are going to frame this. This is our first piece of gravel trap fan art and um, it being a friendship bracelet for all of our listeners oh, who cannot see. Sorry. Yes. I'm holding is. up a friendship bracelet that <laughs> says gravel trap with little hearts on it. I, I love like, it so much. This is a part of the collection, but it's like, just this absolutely massive like pile of bracelets. How do we feel the the friendship bracelet um, endeavor went at Austin? Was it a huge success? It was really fun. Like I, we went to a bracelet swap that was like organized by um, Jess, Jess Holt. She's on TikTok. She's fantastic. I follow her. A bunch of us follow her. Um, But it was like a whole bunch of creators that we know some of us have met in person, some of us hadn't. And then it was a whole bunch of people that follow us. So it was really nice to just like have this little thing where we were all in one place and just like <laughs> people can be really funny. Like some of them have um, the bracelets that are driver quotes and some of them have just the little anagrams of things. And so you have to think and kind of be like, which ridiculously long quote is this referencing? And somebody actually made a necklace instead of a friendship bracelet and just fully spelled out a super long quote. And it was like one of those old lady pearl chain type style things (laughs) where you're just like, oh my goodness, that is so good. But Sophie, thank you so much for the gravel trap one. That was really sweet of you to make and give to us and it will live on in our hearts forever. Yes, And And we love you. Our walls. (laughs) Yes. And we hope that school's going well. Oh, yes. Good luck. Yes, good luck in school, Sophie. I feel like that concludes the checkered flag segment of the day. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much for listening. Yes, we'll be back next week with Brasilia. Brazil. Lewis Hamilton's other home race. I'm going to find a uh, Fast and Furious quote. This is Brazil. This is family. I watched the most recent one. I was it, It's the first Fast and Furious I disliked. I can't keep up with all of those. There's too many of them. We'll have to debrief it another time.